Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. This episode is brought to you by Curiosity Stream. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Jason. We're back. We're back on our on our new day. Yes, for those who listen immediately to podcasts when they appear in their podcasting app of choice, uh, Liftoff now posts on Tuesday instead of Monday. And we did this for one good reason, which was we were pre-taping it on the Thursday prior, and all the space news would happen between the Thursday where we would record and the Monday where we would release. And so we were tired of that. <laughs> so now we record it on a Tuesday, release it that day, and uh, I think it's going to be better. I would say that it is already paying off because our first pre-flight topic is news that broke just today. Yeah, like two hours ago before I was we at recorded lunch. this. <laughs> yeah, um, and I was sitting here at my desk, uh, saw the tweet about the stream. I saw that they were making an announcement yesterday. So yeah, it's more exoplanet news. And this is cool. I actually met when I was down at Ames Research Center. Um, I met some of the people who work on Kepler, which is this... Uh, instrument that was launched into space that is uh, specifically seeking exoplanets and they do it by the the eclipsing method so they're looking for little dips in the light from a star and the the idea that we can see when a planet just passes in front of uh, a star just the tiny amount of light that that dips down that it's a little bit darker because a tiny percentage of its face of a star light years and light years away uh, is eclipsed by a planet. Uh, but we can. And <laughs> we can use that uh, to uh, determine uh, the size and uh, and uh, location of that planet around that star. It's pretty amazing. So Kepler was designed to do that. Um, it's on to its sort of second mission now, but they had this raft of data that they got. And the problem with it was that it was a huge amount of data and there are false positives in it and it's very difficult very time consuming to go and confirm the data for each of these like a couple thousand uh, data points that they found so they've they've done it for some but what happened is there's a paper that was released today as we record this uh, uh, that involves a new approach to statistically analyzing the data from Kepler. So the way that it works, I always want to say Kepler, and then I imagine um, elves that bake cookies in a tree. So Different I'm not going to say that. Kepler, <laughs> uh, they, he, he analyzed the, the data, the scientist, and did a, did a paper on it. And the idea there is that uh, a combination, it's a statistical analysis, a combination of data analysis and error rate that allows them to basically score or these like couple thousand candidates that Kepler found that have not been confirmed as exoplanets and give them a score of their likeliness to exist basically from zero to one. And um, by doing that, they're basically triaging the data and they basically said, look, if it's got a 99% that it's right, we're going to declare it an exoplanet. So this is not like a new observation. It's a new uh, method of of uh, determining based on the data uh, what uh, sort of basically classifying these as declared exoplanets like these the confidence is so high that they're just going to say these are not uh, at all likely to be uh, false readings and there's a and and so this number is uh, one thousand two hundred and eighty four. New planets that have just been declared exoplanets by Kepler. There are another several hundred that are have been declared probably planets, and then another uh, few hundred that have been declared probably not planets. And presumably now the the some people will go to the probably planets and do more analysis there and do more observation in the future and and find out what what the deal is. And uh, but the other thing that will happen now is that people can turn their sights to these. 1,284 uh, planets and using ground-based telescopes and using new space telescopes that are coming, uh, do more analysis of what they've found and do confirmation and get more information about these planets. Um, The things that that came out of the data that I thought were most interesting, um, this more than doubles the number of sort of near-Earth-sized planets that we know about that we can say are confirmed around other planets or uh, around other stars. And Nine of these are Earth analogs in habitable zones around their sun. So roughly Earth-sized, between one and two Earth masses, and in an area around their star that 
where that planet is getting roughly the amount of uh, radiation from the sun uh, that it's orbiting around as we do between sort of Venus and Mars. So including Earth right smack in the in the in the center of that. And so that's really interesting because that gives them uh, that gives uh, astronomers nine new targets for further analysis to to uh, learn more about uh, Earth like exoplanets. Uh, so th- it's all pretty cool. And when you consider that these are only these are only the stars that have a planetary disk between us and them where we're all aligned properly, that there are lots of stars where we don't see the eclipses because the disk is is turned up uh, or down. And uh, and so it never eclipses. Uh, it, it's pretty amazing. It, it really is. And, uh, you know, looking at these, I encourage everyone to go check out the link in the show notes because they have all this stuff graphed out with some really like the habitable zone planets like in this chart you can kind of see like this is where we are and this is where these other things relate to us and 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 i like that it's not based on distance because you know stars are hotter or or, or cooler so it's based on sort of like that energy and that's one chart and then the other chart the other axis of the chart is how bright or, or it's how hot the star is so you can get some idea there and then the little dots the size of the dots is it's is relative to earth which is also, so you can get an idea, they're all a little bit bigger, but some of them are not that much bigger. Yeah. Um, and then there's that huge chart where it shows like all of the exoplanet findings, including the new ones and where they chart. Um, and that that's pretty amazing too, to think that we've gone in 20 years from having like, we, we assume that there are planets out there, but we're never really going to know to, yeah, we know that there are thousands of planets out there that we've seen, that we actually have seen evidence for. And that suggests to us that, you know, basically the universe is full of stars with planets around them, including planets like ours. Yeah, and there's another story. Uh, before this story broke, there was another story about exoplanets uh, that that came out last week. Do you want to talk about that one? Yeah, so uh, this is, uh, we have a link to it over on Ars Seneca, and it's looking at a, a article that was in the Nature Journal talking about these two planets, and of course, um, it's not an exoplanet if it doesn't have a, a weird name. So these are Trappist 1, <laughs> 1b, and 1c. And the... Um, and 1D, can't forget about 1D. Um, and the the sort of overarching story here is that these are pretty close to us. In fact, they're close enough to us that we should be able to study their atmospheres. You know, some of these planets that we were just talking about before are so far off the detail that we can see, you know, um, of the atmosphere obscuring the light is this is not really there in those really far away images, but these are close enough about 40 light years from the sun, that these Earth-sized worlds uh, we may be able to, to gain additional knowledge from because of their distance to us. Right. Because they're closer, we may be able to, to glean more information than we can from some of these things that are very far away, and we're only just seeing the, the dimming stuff. Tra- it's called TRAPPIST, by the way. It's a backronym, but it, it's basically a, uh, it's a, a telescope. Uh, it's a it's belgian <laughs> so it isn't just a, a clever name yep. uh the from the land of the trappist monasteries comes the trappist telescope and this is their uh this is their uh the thing that they're studying is this trappist one star which is only 40 light years away and it's cool and there's a lot of conversation about whether you can really have a habitable planet around a a, a very uh, cool star like this because the planet has to be very close which means it's probably tidally locked which means probably one side you know one side faces that star all the time and gets cooked and then the other side is facing away from it and is cold and that there might be a habitable zone around the sort of the the endless sunrise sunset terminator basically uh, but that it might have a, a, a you know very if it has an atmosphere, it might be a, uh, a turbulent atmosphere, and there's a question if the, the atmosphere might get blasted off. I mean, there are lots of questions about it, and if there are flares, there's a lot, lots of questions. But it is, you know, just because we don't live in a solar system like this doesn't mean that it couldn't be a place where life could be. Right. So let's um, let's talk about SpaceX for a second. They yeah, how about how about those guys, huh? Yeah. So they launched <laughs> the. Um, uh, another one of these, spoke about it last time, one of these um, satellites way out into geostationary orbit, so it's much further out, right. much less fuel to get back. The rocket is going much faster. And they had, they had up until like two days before this, SpaceX was on the record of saying, we're not going to land this. Like, it's super difficult. 
but sure enough, they did land it. And so that's uh, two in a row at sea following the one um, uh, land on land landing back in the, the end of last year. So it's now three Falcon 9s that have uh, successfully landed. They haven't reflown any of them yet, like Blue Origin, but they are uh, s- seemingly getting better at uh, recovering the Stage 1. Yeah, they, they didn't um, think this would work. <laughs> they, they said uh, 50-50 because of the speed. Um, they have a three engines. They had to do like a super uh, deceleration to get this to work. This was a much, much more difficult landing. And uh, it, it like landed right on the spot. It's pretty. The video is kind of hilarious because you see it kind of blasts out white because of the the brightness of the mm-hmm. of the of the rockets. And then when the when the the camera gets it together again, there's a rocket there. Yeah. And then there's a picture that they showed later of people servicing the rocket on the on the where you realize that you know this thing this is not a this is not a model rocket. This is the, you know the things that you lose the scale when you see those videos. You think that it's like you know. I don't know the size of a couple of houses, and it's way bigger than that. So that that made me laugh out loud when they when they posted the picture of the people working around the base of it. Like, it's a huge rocket, and they 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 nailed it. It's it's a uh, it just pop pop. There it is on the video. It's yeah, pretty incredible. I don't I don't have the number in front of me, but I think the stage one is something like a hundred and fifty feet tall. I mean, it's it's the size of a building. Like, it's not this this little thing on a little boat. It's this scale is like you said, pretty humorous but uh yeah. they've, they've done it again so f- for me i think the you know the next thing to see from them is to um to refi one of these things and they've been quiet so far about any testing that's been going on so yeah it sounds sounds like the first one they landed they said they've test they're, they're testing it but they're not going to relaunch it they're gonna they're gonna display it at spacex headquarters yeah um but put that, in the, the put, put in the lobby jason just you know yeah yeah, why not? As you do, I put a spaceship in my lobby. If I had a lobby to put a spaceship in, <laughs> uh, and and but they are they're going to try. I think this one they said they were going to they're going to refly, and that that's part of the the deal is you do the testing and you refly them, and you want to be able to retrieve them multiple times, and and that that's what gets the cost down. But uh, pretty great stuff and uh, uh, fun to watch the YouTube uh, YouTube video of the of the landing the launch and landing coverage. Pretty great. It's not a place you want to be standing. Yeah. So, um, so Titan is back in the news with more of its uh, nuttiness. Uh, yeah, because it's it's other than the Earth. Did we did we say this? It's like the only other body in the in the solar system that has uh, liquid on its surface. I think yes. that's I think that's one of its claims to I fame. So. And, it, and it turns out that um, it's it's official now. Um, it's a huge portion of Titan's surface is is covered with liquid. There are three large seas around the North Pole, and then there are other there are other lakes in the uh, in the northern hemisphere as well. Um, so, what is it? A uh, six hundred twenty square six hundred twenty thousand square miles of Titan are covered in these methane seas. Yeah, and that and that's the news that uh, via, via Cassini, which has been. Um, circling <laughs> Saturn yeah. and other bodies for uh since when I don't know 2004? 2004 um that it's instrumentation on Cassini that has let scientists know that this does appear to be methane and that's and that's the news there was some uh debate there's an article in the show notes that kind of goes into it I think in more detail than we will but uh there were there's some uncertainty about what uh the makeup of that liquid was and uh and here we go so Methane. Yeah, it's it's uh they, they've got a cool um the article that Spaceflight Insider that we're looking at here. You know, it's got a it's got a cool NASA Caltech image of the of uh of one of the one of the lakes, one of the seas, and then the, there's a there's a nice uh, Cassini shot that's sort of like through the haze and near infrared, where you can actually sort of see uh sunlight glinting off of the off of the surface of the of the methane lake methane it's not water it's methane uh it's pretty great it's a, what a funny uh what a funny uh solar system we have and what a funny uh set of chemistry is happening on yeah the surface and, of titan and this this comes on the the heels of a discovery in 2013 
that puts the depth of uh, these seas as great as 160 meters, about 520, 525 feet. Mm. Um, so this is not just like a little bit of surface liquid spread out over a large area. This is a, sig- a significant volume of, uh, of liquid methane present. And yeah, uh, t- there's some there's some questions about why methane is it being how is it being replenished and that sort of stuff that's still unknown. But it's a step towards knowing more about uh, Titan and its oddities. Yeah, it's uh, kind of amazing. This, you know, it's a moon around Saturn, way out in the solar system, that's got uh, a thick atmosphere and uh, liquid on its surface. It's pretty, pretty wild, pretty amazing. Um, what else? Hey, we were talking earlier about how we find exoplanets by having planets move in front of their stars, and we measure the difference in light. But we got to see that happen in our own solar system just the other day. We did. So on May 9th, uh, Mercury took a transit path across the uh, across the sun. And it may seem obvious if you sit down and think about it, but we can only see this with Mercury and Venus because <laughs> there's nobody else in between us and the sun. Right. And it's like, I think they said like, it's like a dozen times, 13 times a century. Everything lines up where we can see uh, Mercury take its path across um, across the sun from our, our viewpoint. And of course, lots of images, lots of video out about it, and it really is—it's um, beautiful. And it's just this little, perfectly round black dot, just, <laughs> just, just uh, taking his sweet time going across the going across the face of the sun, with the enormous, uh, you know, face of the sun behind it in those in those pictures. There's a YouTube video that we'll put in the show notes that NASA did. That's a montage of uh, uh, images in various wavelengths of light from uh from the transit and you know in some of them you can see like these you know the seething face of the sun you know back in the background as the little dot goes do 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 <laughs> just marches across in its yep. in its path the winged messenger taking his trip across the sky exactly so yeah so the yeah. next one uh i believe isn't just it's really not that far off it's the next couple of years there's like two kind of close to each other coming up and then, um, and then after that, it's a it's a longer period of time because things have to be lined up just right for us to see this. Right. It's sort of like how how the Venus transits happen in pairs, but the Venus tra- transits happen in pairs far you know far removed from each other. It's it's whatever we said it was like a, every hundred years or something, mm-hmm. um, eighty years. It's a long time, and this one's not so bad. So so we had the, we had the one on May 9th, and then there's another one in November of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the gap is uh, 32, uh, and then and then they keep going, you know, 32, 39, 49, 52, 62, 65, 78, 85, 95, 98. Yep. So they, 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 they come in sort of pairs, and but, you know, not, not infrequently. It's don't, basically don't every the 10 next years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it, but yes, if you, if you miss the next one, it will be uh, 13 years before the one after that, so... Uh, cause 2032, not as far away as you think. It's true. Yikes. Um, I, uh, yeah. So, uh, so any other, any other news from space? I think that's, uh, I think that's the, the highlights from the past, past fortnight. A lot of, a lot of fun planet stuff this week. Yeah. A lot, a lot of good stuff. Um, and then, so coming up, I'm going to really bum everybody out and talk about, um, I'm going to kill the sun. Basically that's what's going to happen. But, but before... Is it going to kill you, Jason? And no, I'm every, going to everyone you know. <laughs> well, really, the universe is going to kill it. Um, I'm just going to tell you how. But uh, first, uh, uh, Stephen, why don't you tell about tell uh, our listeners about our uh, our good friends at Curiosity yes. Stream? So this episode is brought to you by Curiosity Stream. It's the world's first ad-free nonfiction streaming service. It's founded by John Hendricks, who is um, the founder of Discovery Communications. Just a little communication company you might have heard of. Curiosity Stream has a lot of great features. It has over 1400 titles and 600 hours of content. It's available in 196 countries and it's on many platforms. Uh, I've been using the iPad app a lot, but it's available on the web, Roku, Android, Chromecast, Amazon Fire, uh, Apple TV, almost anywhere you'd want to watch some high quality Nonfiction streaming, uh, Curiosity Stream is there. And it's a wide variety. It's science and technology content, nature, history, and many more topics. And 50 hours, 50 plus hours of that content is available 
in 4K. They've got a device like uh, you on your iMac there in your office, Jason, and you can watch 4K content from Curiosity Stream. More and it's not it's not just documentaries. Curiosity Stream also uh, hosts interviews and lectures, such as Stephen Hawking's Universe. Uh, Next World, which talks about the future of technology, virtual reality, AI, uh, the human face of big data, which is ex- currently an exclusive on Curiosity Stream, and the Road to Singularity, which actually started the other night, uh, w- that looks at exploring the inevitable arrival of superhuman intelligence. Now, monthly and annual plans start at just two ninety nine a month which is uh, less than a cup of coffee and definitely less than just a single title on competing on-demand platforms. So here's what you do. Go to curiositystream.com slash RelayFM and use the promo code RelayFM during sign-up to get unlimited access to the world's top uh, documentaries and non-fiction series completely free for the first 60 days. That's two months free. Again, one of the largest 4K libraries around. Go to curiositystream.com slash RelayFM. Use the offer code RelayFM at sign up and tell them you came from us. And it really is great. I've been really enjoying my membership. Uh, and we'd like to thank Curiosity Stream for supporting Liftoff and all of RelayFM. Hooray. All right. Are you ready for me to kill the sun? Yes. Uh, let's... Um, well, let's, before we get there, let's talk about where the sun potentially came from. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, think on the bright side. That's the right. Birth. Well, well done. Well done. So I'm I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the sort of the life cycle of the sun. This is uh, uh, some people who, uh, as with all the things we talk about, some of our listeners are going to be like, yeah, yeah, I've heard it all before, and others are going to not have. So that's uh, you know, you got to take your chances. But I think I'm, I'm going to try to do a little quick, simplified recap of like the life cycle of our own sun. Um, and maybe I'll throw in some destruction at the end just for fun. We did talk about the sun and like what it is and facts about the sun and how it works in episode six. So you should uh, check that out. There's uh, We put a link in the show notes. Stephen helpfully put a link to it in our uh, internal notes. Uh, so and we both patted each other on the back and said, "Nice episode, good episode." <laughs> um, I also want to I also want to reference uh, a class that I took via podcast actually. Um, it's from Ohio State University. I've mentioned uh, him before, Professor uh, Richard Pogge. Um, it, it was uh, the entire podcast is still online. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's called Introduction to Stars, Galaxies, and the Universe. Uh, that This was my favorite of my uh, podcast astronomy classes. I did a bunch of them. Um, and uh, I really like how Pogge describes everything. And he's got a whole unit about the structure and evolution of stars. That's great. I really love the uh there's one called the evolution of high mass stars that i'll get a short version of at the end but it's like what happens to make a supernova that's just hilarious and um and uh mind-blowing uh but it's all good he talks about uh the hertzsprung russell diagram which is sort of like our understanding of how we classify stars and where they go in their lifespan and because a lot of this stuff was invented you know, things were discovered in sort of the wrong order. It was it made sense why they were discovered in that order, but you know, you start doing classifications based on um like the the star classifications are based on a misunderstanding of star lifespan and so uh they don't you know they were classified as a b c d e f g, right? But in the end it's o b a f g k m. <laughs> which oh well so anyway pogies uh we'll put a link to pogies uh astro 162 class i highly recommend it um i definitely used uh that class my memories of that class and his notes as a basis for my notes for this so uh big thumbs up to richard pogie uh, love that podcast um and um and also just encourage you there are a lot of great astronomy class podcasts out there on itunes U and just as pod, regular old podcasts on uh, university websites check them out they're uh you could, uh, if there's a subject that interests you, you can probably find an expert who is really good at talking about that subject in great detail, and uh, it's pretty awesome. Anyway, so so the sun, where did the sun start? And the answer is, before the sun even existed, there were other stars. Our sun is not, you know, a, one of the first stars to exist by far in the in the universe. And it, it, the lifespan of a star, it ends up releasing a lot of their mass. You know, they 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 release their mass back out into the universe. There are usually there is a a core that remains, but a lot of the mass of a star gets released back out into nebulae, ultimately into the interstellar medium where there's just you know matter floating around out there 
and these things called giant molecular clouds, which are basically, you know, clouds of matter, cold clouds of matter um, that gradually will form into clumps. Um, and these clouds are so diffuse. I mean, they're sh- you could f- you could probably fly right through them and wouldn't even notice because um, they, they, but they're more atoms than in like empty ish space, but it's still pretty empty. Um, and so something needs to to make them uh, sort of like a, a grain of sand in a in an oyster uh, turning into a pearl. Something needs to make them coalesce into into clumpier collections of matter. And usually that's a, that's different clouds bumping into each other, where they're they're uh, interacting with one another. Sometimes it can be a shock wave from a supernova that's nearby. Um, and sometimes just the passing through a spiral arm in the galaxy will be enough. The influence of gravity will be enough to make it uh, the impetus to uh, to uh, form the, the molecular clouds into clumps. And from those clumps come protostars. So the clumps get, uh, you know, as they as they uh, continue to clump, uh, they go they get hotter, they get denser. Gra- the effects of gravity continue um, and you end up with a, a, a big clump of matter that is uh as it kind of accumulates and compacts it also will usually pick up a rotation mm-hmm. uh this is how we get you know Stephen, you and i have talked about it on the show a lot like everything in the not everything most things in the solar system se- seem to go in one direction right. and the idea is that this is where that direction is imparted is as everything is collapsing into a protostar and a bunch of matter that will uh, end up full- forming the solar system um just the, the 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 physics of that act will impart a rotation on the on the the disc on the clumps and that's where we get our you know where most bodies rotate in one direction revolve around the sun in one direction um not the band one direction that's totally different hmm totally different i think i think <laughs> we may use need to use science to confirm that so <laughs> so you know, so you get a protostar, and it's got gravity, and these are bigger clumps of matter, and uh, sort of like most of the disk of material around the the star kind of gets cleared out. A lot of it just sort of gets swallowed by the uh, the 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 center, which is this central uh, body, which is going to become a a, a star. Um, this is also where uh, for a little further out, planets are forming. They're making their own little mini clumps around uh, the influence of the larger clump at the center. Um, uh, as the gravity is pushing down on that big blob in the center, it does get hotter, um, which is why we call it a protostar. Like the more you compact all the all the gas and other elements, you know, all those elements are packing closer and closer together. Gravity is uh, increasing, um, and when you do that, the the object gets hotter, um, but it's not. Uh, hot enough to fuse hydrogen into helium which is the power source as we said in back in episode six it's a power source that that powers the sun so it's a it's only a protostar at that point but then eventually there's a moment where the uh the heat the pressure everything at the core of that object becomes so great that helium is formed out of hydrogen. The, the nuclear fusion begins to happen. And when that happens, it's an immense power source. The act of fusing uh, hydrogen into helium releases huge amounts of energy. And at that point, you've got core ignition. Uh, our, for our sun, that was 4.567 billion years ago. And when I describe it, uh, let's keep in mind, this is a process that probably takes about 30 million years for for or took for our sun it varies based on size so over 30 million years that clump gets hotter and hotter and hotter and eventually uh it lights up as uh as uh well it doesn't really i mean i don't want to say it lights up because that's not entirely accurate the core begins the core ignites fusion Mm -hmm. begins and that's the moment we say it's now on the main sequence It, it congratulations protostar you're a fabulous star and we love you <laughs> all grown up yeah yeah um so so at that point it's a star and and what do stars do stars uh, are powered by nuclear fusion the, it reaches a point of um when you're on the main sequence a star is uh at thermal equilibrium so the amount of energy it is generating in its core is balanced by the amount of energy it's transporting and radiating out so it it reaches it it reaches it's hydrostatically uh in a state of equilibrium and it's in ther- thermal equilibrium so uh that's a main sequence star it's radiating out uh 
light and heat and you know all electromagnetic radiation and uh and also generating it itself and that's a, that's a main sequence star and that's where we are today in our solar system we are we are we are roughly halfway through our sun's time on the main sequence it's it's going to last about 10 billion years um and like i said it's only about 4.6 billion years ago that it went on the main sequence so you know roughly five billion years are left so we're about halfway through the main sequence life of the of the sun where the sun will be roughly like it is as we see it today but there's actually an evolution that happens in stars we think of stars because our lifespans are so short and even you know compared to the scales i mean i just said 30 million years just to get a protostar to light up as a sun and and start doing fusion um uh, this is a. It, it takes a long time, so we don't we don't get the sense. But we actually do have scientific evidence to show that stars get brighter with age. What happens is the center keeps getting hotter, and the hotter it gets at the center, the faster the fusion process runs. Mm-hmm. And so as stars get older, they're burning faster, and that means that they need to radiate out more because of the equilibrium, and so they get brighter. So when our sun lit up as a main sequence star powered by fusion, it was dimmer and cooler than it is now Um, but it will be getting it it will get brighter which leads to a depressing fact by the way Um, I'm going to talk about what the ultimate fate of the earth in a little bit but um, the ultimate fate of the earth if you learned as a kid like that the sun's going to turn into a red giant and swallow the earth and that'll be the end of the earth uh, there's truth in that but the fact is that the earth will be baked long before yeah. that happens because be the sun yeah because the sun keeps getting brighter and 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 so in i think i read something that said that in about a billion years which is still a long time right but in about a billion years um the sun will have baked the earth to the point where it won't be able to support life so it, we although we're halfway through the main sequence on earth we are we are not halfway through the earth's life as a as a biosphere because um, the sun, we will move out of the habitable zone basically as the sun gets brighter and hotter over its life. Now that, what that means is that it will get warmer further out in the solar system. So uh, it'll be warmer at Mars. It'll be warmer in the outer planets and the moons around the gas giants. And that leads to some interesting things. If you think about what the solar system might look like in 3 billion years, but for, for earth, our fate is, is not, you know, it doesn't matter if it gets, I mean, maybe there'll be, you know, we'll leave a monument somewhere that survives a billion years that we will invent uh, and get swallowed by the sun at some point, but it won't matter because it won't be a habitable place by then. Right. And the, um, that, that idea of what would happen, you know, out past the earth's orbit is, is interesting where you could have someplace like, like say Titan, just to pull a moon out of the draft um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, right now has liquid methane on its surface, but like as, as it, Assumingly, it gets warmer as the sun grows and is brighter and hotter. That uh, that uh, ecosystem on Titan could be drastically different, and that sure. places that cannot support you know carbon-based life as we understand it maybe could at some point in the future. Yeah, well, think of think of Europa uh, and all of the the liquid water that it has. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's it's it, it does it become like a giant water drop. <laughs> maybe like yeah, you're, you're gonna have things that i mean if you think about things melting right that's basically what's going to happen is the rocks in the outer solar system are 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 water they're ice and so the rocks in some places will start to melt in and become liquid um, and the stuff that's liquid is going to you know presumably evaporate uh and so the the chemistry out there will be very different so it's something something to look forward to <laughs> in a few billion years <laughs> yeah yeah um, so main sequence, uh, we're getting brighter, we're getting hotter. Um, uh, a nice thing about the main sequence, if you're looking and, uh, reading about, reading about stars or looking at a telescope, um, uh, when stars are on the main sequence, it's a very simple relationship. The bigger stars are hotter and brighter. The smaller stars are cooler and fainter. There are, you know, exceptions about the, at the end of the life of a star, but when stars are in their main life, it's all a factor of size. The bigger ones are brighter and hotter. They live less time, actually, and the smaller ones, cooler, fainter, and live a lot longer because the, the fusion process happens much more slowly. Even though they're smaller and they've got less stuff to fuse, less hydrogen to fuse into helium at the center of the star, uh, it's cooler. 
so it all just goes slowly and those 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 red red dwarf uh stars that are super they're on the main sequence but they're super small they can last a very long time so on the on the spectrum of bigger hotter brighter stars on one end and smaller cooler fainter stars on the other where does our sun end up I don't know. I, it's always des- described as a as a middle sized star. It depends on what the what the population is. Um, the biggest stars are like a hundred times as massive as the sun, and the smallest are about as tenth as massive. So you could argue that it's on the uh, on the small side. Um, but you know, there's a lot of variation, and you don't want to bring in like the. It's 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 hard to say. I would say it's an average kind of star, but I'm I'm sure somebody could quibble and say, well, depending on how you measure it, you could say that it's on the smaller side of the range. Um, but I I would say, <laughs> okay, here's my answer: it, on the range of possible uh, main sequence star sizes, it's on the low side because you can have very large main sequence stars. They don't last very long, but you can have very large ones, and bad things happen to them when they die. But in terms of the prevalence of stars in the universe i think you would have to say that it's actually on the large side because my impression is that the there are lots of those little red stars and they don't die for a very long time so there are all there are more of them all the time and they don't go away not even after 10 billion years will they go away so depends on how you measure it but you know i think it's i think it's okay for our purposes to say it's average there's nothing nothing really special about it it's a it's a you know it's hard though sometimes because you look at things everything's described as being uh in solar masses so you're like ours is worth one <laughs> and then everything else is just told in in a relationship to the sun right okay uh so okay five billion years left ish on the main sequence gotcha and so, so as, I can stop now, and the sun never dies. I'll just stop talking now, and we'll just not well, nothing. Have, it's all good. Five billion years, just uh, just no problem. Oh, we have to talk. Well, there's so much more outline left. Um, yeah. So as things move along the main sequence, and uh, basically what happens is this: these stars run out of hydrogen first, or that they run out of hydrogen and helium ash kind of begins to pile up. Right. This yeah, begins yeah, this process. Mean, Right, there's still hydrogen because there's a lot of hydrogen in the in the uh, in the star, uh, but at the core, you know, the helium piles up because you're you're making helium as you go, and there's more and more and more of it, um, and it is. I mean, if you talk about burning hydrogen into helium, which is sort of the metaphor that people use to talk about this, the helium is the ash. It is it is non-reactive. It just sits there. It's not on fire. It, you know, it's not part of the chemical reactions that are happening, the, the the fusion that's happening. It's it's the byproduct of it. It's the result. It's not the thing that generates the energy. It's the result of the factors that generate the energy. So there's more and more and more of it um, at the core. And uh, and by percentage, yeah, there's more of it, increasingly more of it than there is of the hydrogen at the at the center of the of the star where the fusion is happening. And uh, that that leads to that, then it becomes like an why is why is the core of a star like an M M&M, and M, Stephen? <laughs> it it's because it has it has a candy shell. What ends up happening is, uh, you know, the hydrogen is the, the the helium is at the very center and it's very dense, and the hydrogen is all around it and it's still fusing and still making more helium. But it kind of becomes this shell that's burning, um, uh, on the outside of the helium at the core, um. This is uh, so basically the process is the hydrogen at the core runs out. There's lots of helium there. The helium, there's eventually enough of it that the helium is collapsing on itself under its own weight. So the helium is, uh, you know, there's a deep helium core and the shell of burning hydrogen continues to burn into helium around the core. Uh, when this point happens, it gets hotter. And that means fusion happens faster <laughs> so it starts to heat up the star starts to heat up at that point um and uh so this is it, it's it's uh uh leaving the main sequence as it do, does this it loses the hydrostatic equilibrium basically the star's gravity can't hold it in anymore uh, it's just it's it's radiating too much heat at this point and as a result the uh the the envelope of gas around the the core of the star starts to expand 
And as it expands, it cools. That's a physics thing. It, that's what happens. And so you get a brighter, redder, bigger star. And that's the red giant phase of the star, of the sun's lifespan. And at this point, it is a, a, a much larger, probably well beyond the orbit of the Earth, uh, redder, uh, rather star, but it's okay. Remember, the Earth has been baked for billions of years, yeah. so it's 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 done. Already. We're not going to be watching this get larger and redder over the course of generations. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it happens, you know, it happens in half a billion years or something like that. It's not it's not, not a huge amount of time in a, in uh, in solar time scales when it becomes a it becomes a, a red giant. And uh, and so this is happening because, uh, like I said, it's it's getting hotter. The 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 hydrogen shell is burning around the helium core. And then uh, things start to get interest, even more interesting because there's something called the helium flash. Yeah. Um, so it, it, so the, the, the hydrogen shell is burning. Things are getting hotter and hotter. More and more energy is being put out. And uh, the, the normal thermal regulation that used to be part of the main sequence is long gone. And at, at some point, the star reaches about 100 million Kelvin. It's, uh, that's really hot. Um, and that is the uh, amount of energy that's necessary for helium fusion to start. And so suddenly, that ash at the center of the uh, of the star, that sort of non-reactive, just core of helium, suddenly it's fuel. And very rapidly, it begins fusing helium into carbon, and also the helium then fuels fuses with the carbon to make oxygen. So a lot of new elements are being made, heavier elements at the center of the star with a result of um, more and more uh, energy being generated. So very rapidly, the fusion of helium into other elements becomes the primary generator of energy at the center of the star, which means everything gets hotter. Uh, because it's hotter, it gets bluer. Um, but it also uh, it also gets smaller, so it sort of shrinks back in, becomes kind of a a tighter, hotter, bluer ball of of uh, energy, uh, and this is what's called a horizontal branch star. Less uh, less fabulous than the red giant that it was, <laughs> but um, a very hot blue uh, helium burning star for about a hundred million years. Yeah, so basically, it's another step in this phase of as the star burns through its fuel its characteristics change yeah and and this is when when they were originally trying to guess about like the meaning of stars like i was saying this is an a star this is a b star you know by by um by temperature or by composition uh originally they didn't understand that what they were seeing was not just a bunch of stars all of whom were born this way and had these characteristics they didn't they didn't realize for a while that what they were seeing um throughout the universe when they looked on the telescopes was uh, stars in different parts of their life, and that a normal star like ours uh, could look like it does now, but end up being a red giant later. There was, the, I think, originally it was thought, well, there are some stars are, are red giants, and some stars are are uh, are these little yellow guys. And uh, it turns out that the, it's actually you're just seeing them at different ages, which right. is they had the problem with the dinosaurs too sometimes, where they thought, oh, this is a totally new dinosaur species. And it turns out, well, actually, it might just be a baby of the other dinosaur species yeah. or a juvenile. And it's hard to tell. You know, so you, you have to make some guesses. So over time, we realized that, yeah, our star will become a red giant. And then after, after a while, it's going to become a horizontal branch star, which looks completely different and has different characteristics. It's a different, it's burning at a different temperature. It's a different size. It's a different color. Yeah. Um, and it's burning helium instead of hydrogen all of a sudden as the primary motivator of uh, of, of energy, which is uh, pretty dramatic. Yeah, so then it's a horizontal branch star forever, right? Nope. <laughs> nope. No. no, it's not. So we're going to go from, we've gone from hydrogen to helium. Uh, now we're going to go from helium to burning the um, carbon the, oxygen that has been Yeah, well, there's off-put. carbon and oxygen were the result of the helium fusion, right? So now they're the ash at the center. Yep. And, then, and guess what happens? It's like an M&M again. Yeah. <laughs> so you end up with the carbon-oxygen core at the center. It collapses under its own weight. It, it's the ash at the center. This, the helium continues to fuse on the outside around the, uh, the, the helium shell. The hydrogen shell is still outside of that. It's still fusing. Um, this is the point where I say, how many licks does it take to get to the center of the Tootsie Pop? <laughs> because there are many layers, many shells happening here, and they're all burning. But this means, this means again, there's a whole... 
Um, there, there's a whole increase in uh, in the fusion burning in the shells. It blows off uh, or pushes out the envelope of the star, so it expands rapidly again. So it cools off, and it becomes uh, what's called the asymptotic giant branch of star. It's another phase in its in its life cycle. Um, the the so we get again, you know, again we now know. <laughs> All these stars are the same star in different times of its life, or at least a lot of them. Um, but the, the difference between burning uh, helium, fusing helium and fusing hydrogen is that the helium burning is much less stable. So um, sometimes it'll burn a lot and it'll heat up and sometimes it will cool off a little bit. And as a result, you get these like thermal pulses, like pulses of heat. And what they do is they push because uh, they've got to radiate out. They push out and you got the whole outer gas envelope around the around the the star. The star is not just the core; it's all the gas going out kind of a long way um, that we think of as the whole star. And the thermal pulses just completely destabilize that. And over about a hundred thousand years, which is a short amount of time by star standards, most of the star's envelope is blown out. It's just it, like a super fast uh, solar wind. It just gets blown out, and it sheds a huge amount of its mass back into the uh, universe and in doing so it creates the most beautiful thing in the universe i think which is planetary nebula um we'll put a we'll put a link to the show notes of uh from the hubble space telescope of what planetary nebula look like you've seen them um and now you can look at them and realize that it is the it is the death rose of a star <laughs> yeah they're beautiful though i mean th- these are the colors they really are and they're they're lit up by the by the 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 burning core of the star as they expand, and it's just shedding its it's just shedding its skin in interesting patterns too because of these thermal pulses. Um, you get some really interesting looking uh, uh, nebulae that are all just uh, yeah, it's it's a star that's dying, and it's pushing out most of its mass into clouds basically. But it's uh, it's not quite the end, is it? No, no. As beautiful as that is, there's more. But wait, there's more going on. There's still you still got this core, this carbon oxygen core, with gas and stuff surrounding it. Um, and uh, the the planetary nebula phase only lasts about ten thousand years. So again, we're getting to smaller and smaller scales of time, which is why you know a planetary nebula is is somewhat rare because. You know that that in terms of the life cycle of a star is a very short amount of time. So we've got the we've got the carbon oxygen core. That's the the two elements that have resulted from the fusion of helium. So helium is fusing into carbon, and uh, helium and carbon are also fusing into oxygen. Um, that's a dense core. Those are heavy elements. Um, so the pressure in the core keeps growing to the point where it counteracts gravitational forces and there is a uh, big collapse of that core. So that core collapses. And now it's only about the size of the Earth. And it's a very weird state of matter called degenerate matter, which has to do with the electrons uh, in the matter. This is a, a form of matter unlike anything that we would uh, we would understand here, you know, in day-to-day life on Earth. Um, this is a super dense carbon oxygen uh, thing that's got a huge mass and is hot and is the size of the earth. And it's called a white dwarf, which you probably have heard of. You may not have heard of an asymptotic giant branch star or a horizontal branch star, but you probably heard of a white dwarf. And that's the carbon oxygen, the dense collapsed carbon oxygen core that's left over from the star. It never gets hot enough to fuse into anything else. And it sits at the center of the planetary nebula as it all kind of blows away and the white dwarf just keeps on glowing um, and slowly losing its heat into space, uh, we think. Although, technically, the universe is not nearly old enough for any uh, white dwarf to fade away to black, which theoretically it will do someday, but the universe isn't old enough for that. They will glow as these little white dwarfs for a long time, which means if humanity spread out into the galaxy and became who knows what over the course of billions of years, um, our uh, our ants, or our progenitors, our, our, no, not our progenitors, our future selves, our future descendants of whatever kind they are could theoretically come back to the white dwarf that was the core of the sun and say, this is where it all started. Um, billions and billions of years hence because tens of billions of years hundreds of billions of years hence so uh and that's it that's that's the white dwarf sits there and slowly cools and uh the other stuff that it expelled presumably 
floats around, maybe gets recycled into a molecular cloud and turns into, you know, turn, helps turn something else into a, a star someday in the future. It's a, it's a fascinating life cycle, isn't it? Uh, fusion. I mean, if you, if you haven't spent time like thinking about fusion and, uh, chemistry and nucleosynthesis and things like that, it's, it's, it's funny just to think like, well, you know, that there's a temperature at which atoms fuse and, um, and that's how stars work. And eventually, you know, at the end of a star's life, it runs out of this fuel more or less, but it's got this other fuel that ignites and that's what makes it kind of, it doesn't just shut down. It, it, it goes through those stages and, uh, and, and then at some point it can't burn anything anymore. It's out of fuel and that's the, it's yeah. It, instead of just dimming and going to nothing, it, 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 it sheds most of its skin and just leaves the, that carbon oxygen core behind at the, at the end in the white dwarf. We should talk a little bit about, uh, big stars too because we have you know they're they're stars out there that are like you know something like eight times solar mass of our sun i mean or even bigger these huge stars that uh, your your note in here is they live fast and die young yeah um yeah that's a big big stars they're they're the uh i don't know they're the james dean of (laughs) the universe (laughs) um and so they they follow the the same sequence our star does yeah. to a certain point. just faster so go just faster because it's it's denser and and hotter and so it's burning faster um right. but it follows that same path up to a point right so we do hydrogen helium carbon um but then they deviate yeah and well go- so there's enough there's enough there that they can get to that temperature that is hot enough to fuse carbon and to fuse oxygen and so you get more pro- more processes happen, um, more shells, but more M and M's, right? More licks to the center of the Tootsie Pop. So carbon fuses to neon, and, and there's there's great complexity to the the chains of fusion that happen here um, that I'm not going to even remote remotely attempt. But basically, carbon is fusing into neon, and you get you get uh, carbon fusing with neon a neon uh, center, and then the neon f- gets hotter, and neon fuses, and it fuses to oxygen. So there's more oxygen, but that the oxygen is also fusing, and the oxygen fuses to silicon. Um, and if you remember anything about your, your chemistry, what's happening is lighter elements fuse into heavier elements. And this is actually how all the heavy elements are made. They're made inside stars. They, they, stars are the place that the, these forges, they burn hot enough that they can create, uh, heavy, uh, heavy elements by fusion. And that, that's how it works. And then they get blasted out into the universe. And that's where we get our silicon on earth that makes rocks is from, uh, from fusion that happens at the center of, of high mass stars. And you're, and you may be asking yourself, well, wait a second, if the, on the white dwarf, it just sits there and doesn't do anything and is inert, then what, how could we get silicon? Cause it would stay at the, at the core of the star. Aha, but that doesn't happen because, and this is, this is, I love this. This is my favorite thing. There's one day, it's a very bad day. And literally it <laughs> takes less than a day. And when we were talking before about the lifespan of stars, we we're talking billions of tens of billions of years. Right. In one day, it gets hot enough to fuse silicon. All the silicon fuses into iron, um, surrounded by a you know a silicon shell that's burning, surrounded by an oxygen shell, by a neon shell, a carbon shell, a helium shell, and a hydrogen shell. It's hot. It's burning, and the and the silicon is fused to iron, and iron. Uh, Iron doesn't get hot enough to fuse because that's even more heat is required for that. That doesn't happen. But instead, what happens is the iron core collapses on its. It gets to an amount of weight uh, by fusing rapidly with the silicon that it collapses, and it goes from an iron core about the size of the Earth to a radius of about fifty kilometers in one second. Um. The collapse is so great that it's only stopped by the uh, by by the strong nuclear force, which works at incredibly small uh, scales. But at some point, this force that is otherwise not particularly relevant in the story comes into account because it stops the iron core from collapsing even further. But the strong nuclear force 
stops the collapse and makes the core bounce back a little bit. So it's collapsing. The gas uh, from the from the rest of the, the star is collapsing down along with it. But then it hits the strong nuclear force and the strong nuclear force, it sort of bounces. It bounces back. It goes a little bit in and then pushes back out which collides so you've got this ma- massive energy of the of the collapse and the bounce back and it collides with all the infalling material and this is a spectacular amount of energy and it is released all at once essentially and the star tears itself apart in a enormous explosion and that everybody is how a supernova happens <laughs> And that's why we have heavy elements in the universe because they get exploded out of giant stars that have lived fast and died young um, and fused a lot of heavy elements along the way. So, you know, that gold on your wedding ring, uh, it's a part of the the life cycle of synthesizing these heavier elements and then it, having the massive energies in the supernova and blasting it all out. Yeah. The end. <laughs> Everything is dead now. <laughs> Aren't yep. you glad you asked? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. But it's fun. I love yeah. that. That like in the end, after all of these time scales of uh, billions of years or tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, suddenly it's like, and then there's that one day where the whole thing that's, just goes kerplooey, and that's yep. the end. In a, in a truly beautiful and ridiculous fashion. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in that case, you've got a star that is t- that is a, a huge star with all this mass, and it just tears itself apart. It's a. Uh... You know, it's fun. It's fun talking about stars, and it it is, it's something that um I at least going into it didn't know a ton about. But uh, it's so different than when we talk about our planets because it's or other planets because it's easy to sort of uh, make you know comparisons to Earth. I talk about Venus. Well, it's you know Earth sized, but it's way hotter. That sort of thing. But but stars is just different beast altogether, and um and ultimately you know they they uh you know our star will define our planet's fate and yeah, um it's, we're it's here fun. because of it and we will go away because yeah of it. i mean that's that's the thing one of the things i love about stellar evolution is yeah it's big picture stuff because it's billions of years that we're talking about but it also explains like the stars we see in the sky they are are all on some point in this life cycle they're they may be big or small um although mostly the ones we can see in the sky at night are big or or big ish because the really small ones that are too dim to see um and uh, they're all in different points of their life cycle. Some of them are main sequence. Some of them aren't. Some of them, you know, even though we we can say it's a, this only takes 100,000 years or this only takes 100 million years, right? That we don't, you know, we don't live that long. So we see the star and it's like, yep, that's a, that's a horizontal branch star. That's a red giant. And we know what part of its lifespan it is. It's getting toward the end of its life. Um, and that's fun. And then the idea also that, that, the the, you know, the, when the universe started, it was all light elements. It was, it was hydrogen and, and, and helium and maybe some lithium and just light elements. And then, and that nucleosynthesis, all this fusion happening at the inside of a star is the stuff that, um, gets us our heavier elements and, and builds the, the, the matter that we see, uh, you know, several billion years later in the life of the universe all around us in the, in the, the, the planet that we're standing on. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I hope I hope that people like that. It's a it's a it's a different a little bit different, but I like it. It's one of my favorite subjects. So, um and I do encourage people whether it's the the pokey lectures or uh some other thing. If you're interested in stuff like this, you know, you can go into way more detail than we got into here, but I I wanted that's what I wanted is I wanted to give it like the can we do the the quick overview of how this works? And uh, you can dive in if you want to know more, because there's a whole lot more here, obviously. I think people, lots of people make their living understanding the life and death of the stars. And, you know, I, I you know, I, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is. So if you want to go read more of these links that we've uh, talked about are all in the show notes this week, you can find them in your app of choice, yes. or you can find them on the web at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 20. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, there are a bunch of ways to do that. There's an email link on that page. You can hit us up on Twitter at Liftoff Podcast. Jason is at jsnell and write sixcolors.com. You can find me on Twitter at ismh or at 512pixels.net. Uh, and you can find us on Tumblr as well, liftoffpodcast.space. I love that URL. Me too. <laughs>
uh, I think that's it for this fortnight. I think so. I think we've done enough damage, especially the supernova <laughs> explosion at the end. So, uh, so yeah, we'll be back uh, next fortnight, hopefully with a with a uh, a fun guest that we're working on lining up. Yeah, should be good. Yeah. Um, and uh, hopefully, uh, no news will break between uh, now and when we post this episode because we're on our new posting <laughs> schedule. So that's good too. <laughs> All right, Jason, until the next fortnight, uh, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. <laughs>